decades ago, a new European state representing an old European nation appeared on the scene. 30 years ago, in the rubble of the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainian people finally achieved their dream of independence and statehood. And a generation after achieving that goal, today Ukrainians are still fighting, quite literally, to maintain it. The modern Ukrainian state turned 30 this week, and today we'll take a look back at its progress and look ahead to its prospects. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the awesome city of Toronto and the awesome country of Canada is my old friend, Martin Duchok, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario, a fellow at the University of Toronto, and author of six books, including Grand Alliance and Ukrainian Refugees, Ukraine Calling, a Kaleidoscope from Hromadsky Radio. Welcome to The Vertical Marta. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming. And also with us from the awesome city of Lviv is veteran Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumanyuk, author of the book The Lost Island, reporting from an occupied Crimea. Welcome to the podcast, Natalia. Uh, great to join. Great to have you. And thank you for. I know it's. I know it's late at night where you are. So thank you for. Thank you for staying up late with us. And last but not least, joining us from Washington D.C. is Ambassador John Herbst, Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. John, of course, also serves as the United States Ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006. Welcome aboard, John. Thanks, Brian. What Washington does not get some positive adjective. I can give Washington a positive for, for our awesome nation's capital. Uh, Washington, yes, it, it always gets a positive ad. And I assume you're downtown in the office? Yes, I'm in the office. Well, I had to be with All you. Right. Invitation. Yeah, no, great, great to have you. I can't believe it's been this. We, we haven't had you on before now. Um, I want to start our discussion, actually, with, mem- with your memories. Um, of the events of August 1991, because you all saw it from different vantage points at different stages in your life and career, as as did I. And Mark, I wanted to start with you because I I know that you were actually in the Verkhovna Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, on August 24th, 1991, when Ukraine formally declared independence from the crumbling Soviet Union. And if I'm not mistaken, you were, a jur- you were working as a journalist for The Guardian at the time, um, covering those events. Set that scene for us. How did it unfold what were your reactions as a journalist at the time and as a scholar and as a Ukrainian? Well, it was a beautiful, hot, sunny day. And late August, most people are thinking about vacation, and those of us who are academics are thinking about beginning of term starting soon. And here, there's a coup in Moscow. And suddenly, everyone's thinking politics. And when the coup fails, there's a discussion of the Ukrainian opposition they are asking for an emergency session of Parliament of Verkhovna Rada, and they're talking about proclaiming independence. So on August 24th, those few of us who were in Kyiv, because many journalists went on vacation, because that's vacation time, make our way to Parliament, and it was a very, very long day, because nobody knew what the outcome of the vote would be or how things would unfold. Let's not forget that the Communist Party had the majority. And the opposition that was tabling this motion, they didn't have enough votes. They only had 125 seats. So there's no way they could pass this motion on their own. So their task was to convince the communists 
to vote for independence. So there was this big long day of discussions, breaks, caucuses, and for the first time ever, Western journalists were allowed into the Communist Party caucus where they were discussing what was happening, what, whether to vote for or against, and what were the reasons. And then, of course, we all know that at the end of the day, the vote for yes went through and celebrations began. But this was something that, when we look back on it, because it's 30 years later, um, it was, first of all, nobody really knew that it was going to happen. And secondly, the international media attention to the event wasn't as powerful as I had thought it was because I'm so wrapped up and I was in parliament and witnessed this and wrote the story. But the newspaper that I worked for, The Guardian, didn't publish on Sundays. There was no Sunday paper, so the story didn't make it until Sunday. I'm sorry, until Monday. And it didn't make the front page. And it's, it's interesting that because this is the event uh, actually that really did precipitate the breakup, the formal breakup of the Soviet Union. I remember talking to, to Russian officials at that, and they said the minute Ukraine went, we didn't want anything to do with any union. Kakoi Soyuz Bez Ukraine, it was the exact phrase that an official used with me. So it was actually a momentous event, but it did kind of slip under the radar um, at, at that point, given everything else that was going on. Um, Natalia, I wanted to turn to you because you're part of a generation that lived most of your lives uh, in an independent Ukraine. You were very young when Ukraine declared independence, if I'm not mistaken. How has Ukrainian independence shaped your generation? How has your generation shaped Ukraine? Um, so indeed, I was eight years old. I remember very well that day I'd been at my, my grandmother in a village. We even didn't have television, but there was radio. Everybody was listening to radio. Um, so it was like sort of celebration, uh, but celebration in different ways because of, because, because of the coup. People were kind of frightened there would be, you know, not really repressions, probably I was too small to understand that, but, uh, but really there would be, there would be this perestroika that would, that would end. Uh, but indeed, I went to the school, uh, it was a year I went to the school, and I went to the school in independent Ukraine, to a Ukrainian-speaking school, which was not really the case earlier. And I finished the, the TV series, documentary series, out of nine chapters, uh, which were devoted to the 30 years, to the events of the end of 90s, early uh, early 90s and of 80s, uh, helping our generation to understand what was those times, you know, what were they, because we were too young to understand and to discuss that. So it's like uh, talking to, to our parents uh, to, to really feel their pain, to feel, um, to feel that. And the last one, the last documentary was exactly about the day, the 24th of August 1991. And what was interesting for me to see, because we talked to the, for instance, to the people who were in Rada, but we also talked to the radio anchor who was the man who announced to the whole country that the country is independent. But also a lot of people who were, you know, sailors, pilots, people who were working in the trains. And of course, they were not celebrating. Uh, let's say they said that, like, we were partly celebrating, but that was also a surprise. But for, for me, now I think it's very important because a lot of people sometimes forget that it was not a small, of course, it looks today as if there was a small minority uh, of politically engaged people in the Ukrainian parliament. 
or I don't know, a political party. Marta can speak more about, you know, Ukrainian oppositions, Narodny Ruch and the others. But working on the series on um, not political, but how Ukrainians felt, for me, it's very clear that back then, people from all stratas of the society, maybe they were not political, maybe they didn't have the tradition of going to the protest or things like that. But on south or north, in the east or in the west, whether that were miners in the uh, Donbass or former Afghan war veterans or just people who were fed up with poor economic situation, they in the end all waited till the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Now, a lot of people try to rewrite this history, especially in Russia, say that maybe there were a couple of Democrats. No, what mm -hmm. I made, and we for a, for a year worked on this nine, series, nine episode of the series, we understood that no, it maybe was not really openly political by many Ukrainians, but the the independence happened um, not really in spite, but thanks to many, many people and all stratas of the society. Yeah, no, and as Marta pointed out, it was actually the Communist Party that that, that actually made it made it happen. John, I want to bring you into the discussion because you uh, you were a foreign service officer at the time. Um, and you had served, among other places, at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, although I'm not certain where you are in, in, in August of 91. Was it Moscow? In August in Maine, from my ah. job as political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv. Ah, okay, okay. But from 1987, actually from 85 to 87, I was in Moscow. From um, 88, I was working on, I was ahead of the Soviet econ desk at the State Department. Uh -huh. In 88 to 90, I was at the NSC, where I was following both uh, Eurasia, Soviet Union, and the Middle East. Um, no. But I was not—I was not formally watching the Soviet Union when it fell apart. But of course, I was paying very close attention anyway because it was—it was part of my life, and it was—I understood how important things were. But I think to, to put into context the things that Marta said about the absence of attention to this in the West, it's worth remembering that our last strong foreign policy president, Bush the Elder gave his stupidest public commentary mm -hmm. in early August of 1991, three weeks before the independence of Ukraine, the famous, or I should say the infamous, Chicken Kiev speech. And Bush in that speech reflected the general ignorance of the American foreign policy elite about Ukraine, its historic role, and the possible role it could play in the future of Eurasia. It was a very much Ukraine is part of the Russia world speech. Mm -hmm. And I think that the the foreign policy elite, and for that matter, the reporters following it, I'm sure Marta was an exception to this, but the blue chip reporters in American and Western media also saw Ukraine as naturally part of the Russia world. And that's why the significance of this event was not well understood in the West. Ben, uh, I was watching this from Maine. I was, I was not surprised, but nonetheless, I was not astonished but nonetheless surprised by the anti-Gorbachev coup. But of course the coup failed. And with the failure of that coup, I think the independence of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union was just about guaranteed. Although Gorbachev very much did not have that in mind. Yeah, yeah, and, I, I, and Ukraine was the linchpin. I mean, they were, the, the Soviet Union was going to break up if Ukraine broke away from Russia. This broke away from the Soviet Union. Well, this was a given to many Russians I spoke to about uh, this. Uh, Brian, you're right about that, but I would add one more point. There were significant views or significant uh, voices in the Russian world that was quite willing to let everyone depart with the exception of Ukraine and Belarus. 
And that reminds us of a certain uh, yeah. lieutenant colonel of some influence today who thinks he's an historian and an ethnographer, even though he's neither. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And we're going to discuss Putin's infamous uh, so-called oh. article about Ukraine in the in the in the in the yeah. second part when we discuss the historical narratives. John, John, do you you were in the Foreign Service this time, and you I'm not sure what year you left, but have you seen? How fast did you see? You say we were getting this all wrong in the beginning. We didn't understand what Ukraine was and, and, and what, what its importance and place in Europe was. It was seen as part of the Russian world, even in the U.S. foreign policy establishment. How how much progress have you seen in that in the policy world? Uh, I think a decisive change came um, early in the Clinton administration. Uh, once it was understood that Ukraine was independent. Then we developed a policy, in fact, not just for Ukraine, but for the entire post-Soviet space, to encourage both the independence and sovereignty and territorial integrity of all the newly independent states on the one side, and also to encourage the development of democracy and a market economy on the other side. And that was applied to Ukraine. And of course, once that general turn was taken, that general decision, everyone understood that Ukraine was the linchpin. And of course, we had a specific issue with Ukraine and also Belarus and Kazakhstan, which was denuclearization. But we began to pay close attention to Ukraine and provide significant support. And I think also the U.S.-Ukrainian diaspora played an important role in this policy. And, and Canadian Ukraine, was, Ukraine was kind of one of the darlings of U.S. foreign policy, I would say, in the first three years of the Clinton administration. By the second term, by Clinton's second term, and in Ukraine, Kuchma's second term, which came a couple of years later, Ukraine was no longer the darling, no, no surprise, because of corruption-related issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do remember Clinton visiting Kiev in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was 1999. Um, if, right. I'm not, if I was, I was in Moscow at the time. I want to kind of look at some of what I what I consider the key political milestones in um, Ukrainians thir Ukraine's 30 years of independence. And I, you all have probably heard me talk about what I consider to be three, Ukraine's three revolutions, um, which I consider after independence. Um, I consider the revolution of 19, I mean, I consider the election of 1994, the presidential election in the summer of 94 to be a revolution. Um, I was in Kiev at the time. Um, and this, I mean, we didn't realize at the time how important that was, but it was, Ukraine was the first post-Soviet state to have a peaceful transition of power. Uh, Lena Kravchuk lost the election, Lena Kuchma won, Kravchuk stepped down, Kuchma took, took power, and didn't even notice it. It was like one of the most boring elections I ever, I ever witnessed, but it was also one of the most monumental because it set the stage that elections matter in Ukraine. Um, and since that time, every single election has been competitive. Only one incumbent has ever won. Um, and that's pretty remarkable. Um, the next revolution, of course, came 10 years later with the with the Orange Revolution. The way I – and you know, feel free to take issue with – I'm not theological about this, but the way I see the Orange Revolution was effectively the preservation of oligarchic pluralism. What I saw happening with Kuchma trying to transfer power to Yanukovych was effectively the Donbass oligarchs trying to take over – to monopolize power, and the other oligarchs – uh, including people like Kolomoisky and Poroshenko said, no, 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 we have, we have, we have oligarchic pluralism. The Revolution of Dignity in 2014, 10 years later, that was basically the Ukrainian civil society saying we want real pluralism. We don't want oligarchic pluralism anymore. And this is where we are now, Ukraine trying to make that very difficult transition from oligarchic pluralism 
to real pluralism. I wonder if any, if each of you could kind of react to that. You, you, you may agree with me. You may disagree with me. This is kind of how I see it, but I'm not theological about this. Go ahead, Natalia. Um, I, I, I feel that. probably, um, you know, thinking that indeed for the first command, uh, that was something a couple of days ago, we had the independence parade. And, you know, it was for me in the region quite nice to observe three former presidents sitting there. The first president, Leonid Kramchuk, was in the hospital, but like the others were there, apart from one. But, you know, and I know they have a difficult relations, but they were there. And it feels like really so different from any other country, either this Russia or uh, mm. Belarus. Uh, therefore, I today could say, I do think that Ukraine is, you know, imperfect, but democracy. Uh, yet I should mention that every time you, you, sp you were speaking about referring to the Orange Revolution and kind of oligarchic pluralism, yes, it was preserved oligarchic pluralism, but also thanks to the people's protest, in a way you can never underestimate that people at the time, no, they were not forced, they were not misled, it was their choice to go to the streets and uh, stay there as long as necessary to demand the free and fair elections and recount. And even at that moment, uh, 2014, people didn't really think that it could be they, they, their choice could be misused, that some of the things would change. Still, I think that was not the failed story because it was not the it was not yet the protest for kind of a different economic situation or something. It was a very clear goal to make a recount. I remember also that there is a term about competitive authoritarianism, you know, when in Ukraine, different kind of groups, and it's very common for the post-Soviet space. What I believe now, after some years, we don't have that. We, of course, have a dirty politics. We have vested influences of different kind of uh, business and oligarchs. However, you definitely say that in Ukraine, none of, the, none of them can fully uh, can win if there is no some real backing of the people, even like in the worst case, still the choice reflects minority. I would not discount the, the, the role of Ukrainian civil society, which, um, I mean, the story of Ukraine is, for me, is that the civil society is so far ahead of the political class. And once Ukraine's political class catches up to its civil society, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be in really, really good shape. John, you were, you were the U.S. ambassador. How do you see my the, the, the scheme that I drew out of the three revolutions of the uh, progress from from oligarchic pluralism to real pluralism? Um, I, I would I would argue that um, your notion of oligarchic pluralism is an important one, but in, insufficient. And I think Nadia provided most of the ne necessary corrective. Um, the Orange Revolution would not have happened if the Ukrainian people did not take to the streets, mm -hmm. and that was separate from the activity of, as far as I can tell, every Ukrainian oligarch, with the exception of Poroshenko and Boloha, mm. oligarchs at, that, at those times, and they were definitely second or third tier oligarchs. Mm. Now, uh, I, I can drill into depth about the Orange Revolution, and I can tell you that your thesis doesn't quite hold there, or it doesn't quite hold is not to say it has no value. It doesn't quite hold there because uh, Kuchma was ready to go along with the transfer of power by illegitimate or legitimate means to Yanukovych. But that was not in order to empower the Donetsk oligarchs. And in fact, 
One of the reasons why that transfer did not happen, but not the most important, but one of the reasons was in the, in the days preceding Yanukovych's alleged, not alleged, but ostensible day to take power, he and his crew were throwing their weight around in ways that were troublesome to their erstwhile partners. So mm -hmm. my, my sense is that at the end of the day, Kuchma was not unhappy to see Yanukovych um, fall apart. Uh -huh. I would also add that two people who played, from my standpoint, as U.S. Ambassador, US ambassador a very important role in preventing a crackdown on the protesters were Viktor Pinchuk, um, mm -hmm. the son of Lord of Kuchma. But to be mm -hmm. fair and transparent, he's also a supporter of the Eurasia Center. But what I just said, I said 15 years ago, including the New York Times, and Serhii Lyovichkin, mm -hmm. who still is on that other part of the political spectrum, but at that time working in Kuchma's office, I think was on the side of the angels to prevent a violent outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, now, just to go beyond my time as ambassador, um, I was confident that Moscow would fail in its efforts to repress Ukraine in, as the crisis developed in the winter of 2013 and 2014, and even after the seizure of Crimea and the launch of the war in Donbass, because my view was that the oligarchs in Ukraine understood that being controlled by Moscow was very bad for their interests. Mm -hmm. And I think the subsequent activities in early 2014 of Akhmetiv, Taruta, and Kolomoisky all proved that that analysis was right. I should also mention, for reasons of transparency, that our program is supported also by Akhmetiv, um, SCM. Well, I should uh -huh. also say, for the sake of transparency, we were approached by two other oligarchs whom we stayed away from. I will not uh -huh. mention their names, but people who are, I think, definitely a very bad influence today in Ukraine. Uh, I know I I, I I I like I like that transparency. Uh, that, um, Martha, let's bring you into the here. How do you, how do you see this? Because you've been following this extremely closely, reporting on it, writing on it. Um, I, I agree with your broad strokes. I mean, I think the election of '94 doesn't get enough attention. I think that was the momentous event. That's really because it was, as you said, boring. People aren't, and the two revolutions are getting a lot of attention. But I would also say milestones, two other ones. Um, I think the moment where Ukrainians started being prepared to lay down their lives for independence mm -hmm. in 2014, that's a huge milestone. Yep. I mean, one thing is to go and vote. Another thing is to actually put your life on the line. So I think that's a really important um, milestone in the country's maturity. And another really important milestone in terms of democracy is the creation of public broadcasting mm. after uh, the collapse of the Yanukovych regime. Because let's not forget, until 2014, the state continued to own part of the media and think of it as a political instrument. And it's only in 2014 that Poroshenko finally says, okay, the state will step away and create a public broadcaster, which means information is no longer controlled directly by the state. And I think that is a really important milestone for democratization. Yeah, and, and both you and Natalia were, were heavily involved in that with Hromatsky Radio and Hromatsky yeah. Television. Well, I mean, I just was peripherally involved. There's a lot of people within Ukraine who put a lot of effort, um, both journalists and politicians and NGO actors, to make that transition happen. So. Natalia, Actually, if I, you wanted I to follow up on that point, Brian, for a second. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, go, go ahead, John. Mark is absolutely right, but it actually it well predates that. 
let's let's remember the important role of the free internet in Ukraine, Ukrainska uh, Pravda, and of course the whole Gungadze affair, and how that you know lit up civil society, leading to those demonstrations, which essentially were the precursor of Yushchenko's victory. Mm. Natalia, I know you wanted to jump in. The, yeah, I probably. Um want to even move the discussion, um, you know, to which direction. I think that for, for a lot of internationals, Ukraine is uh, kind of a post-Soviet country. What for me was interesting that after the, the, the last revolution and the start of the war, I thought that kind of connection is out. It's quite awkward to speak about, you know, Soviet legacy, Soviet something. For my generation, I remember I also mm, had a bit of the argument with some of our, like, elder generation writers and everybody because we we felt that you know there was a discussion that you always you know speak a lot how gross was soviet legacy how kind of you know how important to stay away from the soviet legacy and for us already for my generation for the last years i thought like look this discussion is taking us back we don't want any more discuss we are done we don't care we we, we should remember about the you know um all the uh, horrors which had been created, crimes, history should be investigated. But like the discussion should be different. What country we want to build? What country, you know, what mm. these, is, is it just should be that was bad in the Soviet Union, so we, we make a market reforms? Not really. It's like today we want to live globally with a bit different direction. What kind of the uh, healthcare right. we want to have? What kind, not, not remembering that that what in Soviet time we don't want to preserve that we want to make it like in the elsewhere so I do think it's 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 really time especially these 30 years of independence which was largely celebrated in Ukraine five years ago there was 25th anniversary it was too close after the start of the war so it was still tragic you don't go to the street with the troops when still there is like the actual fight the the hot fight in 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 the east of the country but now it really feel of, of course as Marta mentioned the war with Russia was the kind of the last the last break, uh, break away from from that, uh, but indeed it, it just really feels like a different country, you know. With, no, you're 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 we, we just grown and mature enough in order, like, not to live through all this memory as often we are now, just with existing the storm for Soviet. Right. No, I I, I, I know that. I know it's uh, your point is very well taken. It would be kind. I was just as you were talking, I was thinking, imagine if in 1975 we referred to West Germany as a former Nazi country. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, in in kind of in this kind of casual way, I I had a conversation with the 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 late great Leonard Mary, the former the first post-Soviet president of Estonia. And he was he was just telling us, stop calling Estonia a post-Soviet country or a pre-European Union country. He said they were not yet members of the European Union at the time. He said, we're a pre-European Union country. We're not a post-Soviet country. And maybe that's the way we should start referring to Ukraine. Before we move into the second segment, I've always been a glass half full person on Ukraine. I mean, I see the problems that are there. I see the battle with corruption as being really, really important and, and, and because it's a key vector of Russian influence. I see the, you know, the, 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 the war with Russia is, is dragging on, but yet I see the glasses half full. I see Ukraine moving in one direction, one direction only, maybe too slowly for some of our taste, but it's moved, but the direction is clear. I just kind of briefly how each of you see this. John, I know you're a Ukraine optimist like I am, but what, what, what would you have to say about that? Well, I am I am not sure you could call me a Ukraine optimist, because uh, I always say I'm optimistic about Ukraine in the long run, 
and not so optimistic about Ukraine in the short run. Mm. And of course, if you if you're optimistic, if you're pessimistic in the short run, and short run is repeated repeatedly, that turns out to be the long run. But the the point is this: if you look at the history of the Ukrainian people, it's essentially a history of a people in subjection to distant, strong powers. And in that subjection, they established their own society, their own political um, dynamics, which was very much pluralistic, very much um, well pluralistic understanding of others, and looking for ways to get by. And in a sense, those are modern sensibilities. That's why Ukraine had relatively speaking to the rest of the former Soviet Union, an advanced civil society. Um, I always think that the best picture illustrating the Ukrainian people is a famous Ripin-Pipin picture of the Zaporizhian Cossacks sending their letter to the Sultan. They are clearly laughing at the Sultan, saying, you know, big shot, far away, ha! That's, That's a Ukrainian attitude, which is very healthy, and also indicative of a natural pluralism, a natural tolerance. So that makes me optimistic about Ukraine in the long run. But unfortunately, the short run has lasted too long. And we see a repetition, especially as various so-called reformers have entered power and then turned out to be not much better than their predecessors. And that remains true to this day. But having said all that, if you look at Ukraine in 2021 and look at Ukraine even in 2014, you have some serious progress. And if you look at Ukraine in 2007, from 2014, you see some serious progress. So it comes, but always in a relatively uh, non-seen way. It happens more in the margins, more incrementally. And I wish it came faster, but you can still see it there. So in that sense, I am in the long run optimistic. I doubt that Ukraine is, is going to win this current war with Moscow. There are enough Russians who understand they've lost. Only Unfortunately, that does not include Putin. Sure. And I think ultimately there will be serious changes domestically, which the country has long required. Mm-hmm. Marta, your thoughts? I'm a historian, so I tend to look backwards rather than forwards. I can <laughs> tell you what I've seen. I can't tell you what's going to happen. Um, so what I have seen has amazed me for 30 years. Um, I was one of those people who never expected to see Ukraine become independent in my lifetime, and it happened. I had never expected to see Russia invade Ukraine and start killing Ukrainians. That's happened. There's been a lot of things that happened that I never expected, and we don't really know what the outcome will be. I'm optimistic that Ukraine will win the war, but Brian, as you said once in my Ukraine calling show on Kormansky Radio, Ukraine has fought Russia to a draw. I don't think they can do any better than that. That's all they have. That's all they have to do. But that doesn't stop the war. So I don't see an end game in that situation. I see a lot of really positive things that have happened, but I also am concerned with the lingering Soviet legacy. And when we talk about corruption, um, that's where I see it. Because I see people like Natalia Homenyuk, who I imagine has never taken or given a bribe in her life. And yet people who are 30 years older than her do it regularly. Mm -hmm. And they still are a good chunk of the population of Ukraine at all levels, in politics, in economics, in academia, the policemen on the street, etc. So that 
mindset is where I still see that legacy. And that's not something that can get changed. And that's where I, I agree with John. This is a generational, it's a matter of time. So uh, half full, half empty. I'm going to go with uh, half full. Natalia, I'm counting on you to say half full because you're of the younger generation here and uh, you've, you've only known an independent Ukraine for most of your life. My, my point is, like, can it be three quarters full? You know, as a Ukrainian, <laughs> like, in that age, I, I don't see the half full. It's not half empty. It's still a bit more. I know, I, of course, as Marta said, uh, I would never imagine uh, Russia invade Ukraine myself. You know, I, I would imagine Ukraine independent because that was my... <laughs> childhood so it was for me something which uh, taken for granted uh, a bit to some extent uh, but I'm quite positive you know when you're a journalist inside the country that, that, that of course as being the journalist which is uh, you know is by default be critical to the government critical to a lot of issues I still when I really look back to the different countries especially in the area to see how society is developing, I do see progress. Uh, I do think that despite of war, can you imagine the country is at war? It remains democracy, it's pluralistic, uh, and it could become, you know, uh, a crazy place, especially in such a global environment where we understand what's going on in Poland, we understand what's going on in Hungary. We see like all the global turns in, in various places, in Philippines, in Brazil. And can you imagine in this, global trend where you know the wind of change is blowing in the different direction ukraine is pluralistic society it elects the president we get criticized but he's perfectly moderate which is kind of more liberal rather than populist in the way we think about the populist in in eastern europe like you know like the, the populist like orban type or uh, or the others so there is this uh potential of the pluralism and the democracy in the society of course there are issues and for me the war is not not as much a soviet legacy uh, today but the war itself is always an excuse for not reform for i don't know for instance not reforming the security service not to making you know it's more transparent it's very hard uh to to be open transparent democratic pluralistic when uh when there is constant threat but even being under this threat of the foreign engine, which is getting out the other post-Soviet countries from that, um, you know, legacy. Uh, because as we discussed in the very beginning, the Soviet Union uh, can't uh, exist without Ukraine. Today, those countries, you know, this part of the world won't be democratic if Ukraine is not democratic. And I think partly we're doing our home task Partly, it should be more successful. There is way, I said, like as a journalist, I can tell so much smaller things which should be fixed, big things which should be fixed. But overall, we are at least on the not, not going on the other direction. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great. I I love your three quarters full uh, uh, the, the statement, Natalia. Um, and it is worth noting uh, that you, as you pointed out, that Ukraine is actually more democratic than European Union and NATO member Hungary. 
at this moment. And that's that's actually worth uh, saying. And, it's a, and that's a good segue to move into our next segment. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at Ukraine's ongoing struggle to gain control of its own historical narrative and its own geopolitical identity. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from the great city of Toronto in the great country of Canada is my old friend, Martin Duchok, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario, the CERES fellow at the University of Toronto, and author of six books, including The Grand Alliance and Ukraine's Refugees and Ukraine's Euromaidan, broadcasting through the Information Wars with Ramad Speed Audio. And also with us from the beautiful and historic city of Lviv is veteran Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumanyuk, author of the book The Lost Island, reporting from an occupied Crimea. And last but not least, joining us from beautiful Washington, D.C. is Ambassador John Herbst, Director of the Atlantic Council to Eurasia Center. John, of course, also serves as the United States Ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006. I'd like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Back in 2008, Vladimir Putin famously told U.S. President George W. Bush that Ukraine, quote, isn't even a real country. In a 5,000-word essay published in July of this year, the Kremlin leader elaborated on that belief, arguing, among other things, that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, that modern Ukraine is an artificial creation in the so- of the Soviet era, and that Ukrainian statehood is only possible in partnership with Russia. Now, not surprisingly, Putin got the history wrong, ignoring Ukraine's long history in Europe, mo- uh, most notably as part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, independent of Russia. But here's the thing. Putin isn't the only one that gets this wrong. The narrative of Ukraine as little Russia took hold in the Soviet era and embedded itself in much of Western historiography, influencing how Westerners view Ukraine. In the 30 years since independence, this has improved considerably. Uh, The historiography has gotten much better, thanks largely to to scholars like Sergei Plohi at at Harvard and later Timothy Snyder at, at Yale, among others. But the narrative still persists. And Marta, again, I want to start with you because uh, you're a historian who's worked on this issue and also because – and I'm happy to – I'm very happy to say this publicly. You are instrumental in correcting many of my own misconceptions about Ukraine back when we worked together in Ukraine in the early 1990s, and I'm very grateful for that um, because you, you were instrumental in my education on Ukraine. How far have we come on this score? How far do we still need to go, and what do we still need to do to get there? Well, I always enjoyed our conversations about history because you always wanted to know things. You said, this I know, this explained to me. And those are the best kind of conversations with open-minded, intelligent people. Uh, How far do we still have to go? I'm sad to report quite far. And this has to do with academia is not a very dynamic uh, environment. It is still pretty 
traditional in many ways. And a lot of Russian history courses still continue to use the same old textbooks with the same old Russian imperial narratives. And so when I get students coming to my third, fourth year seminars or my graduate seminars, and they've been taking courses where if Russia's mentioned, it's in that old traditional way, um, they're, they're already young undergrads and they're still receiving those old narratives. So there's still quite a lot of work to be done in terms of the way the teaching is done, in terms of library holdings um, at conferences. But, and that's, that's a huge challenge. There's a lot of work that still remains to be done. But we've come a long way in this score now. I mean, we, I mean, it's, I, I notice it in little things. People don't say the Ukraine anymore, like they used to say. And I, I think that's a small thing, but it's significant, right? Um, I remember when I was first studying uh, Russian history is the way it was taught. And it starts, of course, with Kievan Rus. And I thought I was kind of like, I was missing something. Maybe I was a little dense and I didn't really understand what was going on here. You're teaching that the, 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 your narrative is, is different from what I've heard before. And they challenge the, the new perceptions. So uh, a lot has changed. And you're absolutely right. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, the not, Ukraine, I, I, Ukraine. There's a book that just came out that I co-authored a, a chapter in. It's called From the Ukraine to Ukraine. Uh -huh. And it's looking at politics, history, economics, media, in these 30 years and how it's changed. So you're absolutely right that there has been a major shift, but a lot of people, including my neighbor, is just having coffee the other day and he said, oh, how's things in the Ukraine? And I was like, Paul. <laughs> About like they are in the Canada, you should have said. <laughs> John, you, you're, you've you been instrumental in kind of shifting the narrative here in, in, in the DC um, uh, policy community uh, and, and correcting the misconceptions that have been out there. How do you, how do you see this? Um, I, I am not an historian, but I understand things historically. And I've read a ton of Russian history and a good amount of Ukrainian history. And your experience of Marta was my own wrestling with this subject before I became ambassador to Ukraine. Um, I, I, do, I, I not prepared for this part of our conversation, so I cannot recall the Ukrainian historian I read on Ukraine's history um, in the spring of 2003. Um, there How were two the huge. It was, it was not Magashi. It was the other one. Sorry. Yes. Subtelny. Or yes. Correct. I read that book, and I remember fighting with the book when, we kept, when I kept reading about this guy Volodymyr. And <laughs> about a third of the way through the book, I realized that I had a very different conception. After that, I had read a fair amount of Russian history before that, but since then, I've read a ton of Russian history in Russian. I read Karamzin's entire corpus in Russian. I read the uh, Kursi, um, who's the great Russian historian from the late 19th century, whose name I'm forgetting right now. Uh, the legal school, Kuchevsky. Uh, I read his book. I read Platonov's books. I read, I read uh, the Yale Russian historian, who's part of the problem. Uh, the guy who wrote in the 20s and 30s and 40s, who's the Eurasianist. Uh, and of course, I realized wow. there was a Russian imperial view of history, which had dominated American history studies of Russia. Mm -hmm. And that was all confirmed to me when a rather poor book on the Ukraine-Russia war came out by one of America's great diplomatic journalists, Marty Kalb. 
which was mm-hmm. completely biased because his great historian professor at Harvard was Karpov. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so I saw this, and I saw this as well with all of my, not all, but a majority of my diplomatic friends from the State Department, who, when Russia invaded Ukraine, kind of took the Russian side. Yeah. Ukraine was part of the Russia world. So I pointed out from the very beginning of Moscow's imperial adventure in Ukraine, the problem that the history of this, the historiography of this subject has posed towards American understanding. And this needs to be brought up on every occasion. It goes beyond the history. Sorry, Natalia, this is the last thing I'm going to say, then I'm going to shut up. Uh, <laughs> there's a tendency among not just people who accept the Russian imperial view of history, but also those who come to this conflict without any real knowledge of the region to take the Russian narrative that this is not a contest between Russia and Ukraine, but between Russia and the United States. Mm. And they ignore the preferences, or to use a very popular word, the agency of the Ukrainian people. Yeah. And that is a human rights and an analytical outrage. No, that that's something that this is something that drives me crazy too. The the tendency to look at Ukraine as this chess piece between East and West that doesn't have any agency of its own. Natalia, I wanna I wanted to bring you in here. Uh, no, I want also to jump in because from my generation, I grew up already, as I said, like in independent Ukraine, and I was also trying to figure out. Why it's like that? Why the world don't understand? I didn't have these complex explanations, you know. I didn't know how it, why it's taught like that in, in uh, globally. Because uh, the good thing, the good part of that, that Ukrainians perfectly know that they are different. Moreover, if you go to Moscow and especially you speak to the, I don't know, like my generation, for them Ukraine today is a foreign country. I was recently, like a couple of years ago, in Moscow, and look, the guys who are twenty. They talk to me like I probably 10 years ago was talking to the Polish reporters, you know, the, somebody who was coming for a bit more democratic country from the West. That's how, you know, young Russian um, um, Russians in their early 20s were treating me as a Ukrainian journalist. Uh, so that, that difference is there. Uh, but of course, the what I understood, uh, talking also to the historians, that that's a problem of a smaller countries. That's also the problem of the countries which have never had kind of a long uh, statehood. Uh, so uh, many people just didn't go to study Ukrainian history. They went to Ru- Russian history, but it's also the issue of a smaller countries. And it takes, it will take a lot of time to uh, fix that. Unfortunately, not that much it depends on the Ukrainians. You know, Ukrainians has less power to change totally the academia globally. Doesn't matter how we try, it's also a bit of the thing of the researchers. Um, but giving you example why it's also so different, uh, I'm, I'm somebody who report a lot on Crimea, that's one of my topics. And I remember for quite a long time I had to answer uh, international reporters, even today. But Crimea, its connection to Russia, and I understood that I was brought up when Crimea was Ukrainian, I have no idea what connection, you know, like really generally, what Crimea has to do with Russia. For me, that's not my mindset. I don't know, it's a, we have the history prior to the Tsarist empire. We had the history of the Crimean Tatars indigenous population. I went to Crimea in the independent Ukraine after my 18th year. So I think that changes with generation uh, and, uh, the the fact that the rush the Vladimir Putin himself uh, doesn't understand that that's a huge 
for us probably the good thing in a way the prop the, the good the tricky thing with russia is that the kremlin often misunderstand ukraine very often and they probably really think that there are ukrainians who believe that they are part of russia but they are not existing so their policies are often based on wishful thinking that was uh, that was uh, proven in the orange revolution when they thought something else about the ukrainian people during the revolution of dignity or when they create tried to create the novorossiya you know which didn't work and i think that article of Vladimir putin was laughed at because maybe he thinks there are allies of like that in ukraine and there are a lot but it's not really the case well, I found it hilarious that he actually published that article in Russian and Ukrainian, as if there was going to be a Ukrainian-speaking audience that was receptive to this message. Now, Natalia, you make a lot of really good points, and I, I, I'm picking up on just a couple of them. When you were talking about your conversations with younger Russians, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have noticed this trend among younger Russians when they're saying in Ukraine, they don't say na Ukraina anymore, which is the grammatical way to say it in Russian. They say v Ukraina. And it also, it's this, this form of almost politically correct virtue signaling that they have this respect for Ukraine because they say v Ukraina. And that's, I think that's another, just like the fact, you know, just like the... the, the... That is my hope. You know, that is really my hope. I know it will take years with Ukraine to, you know, sort out the, the war will be there. Unless Putin is there, the war will be there. That won't be easy with Crimea or anything else. Uh, but where I'm looking at the hope, because, you know, Ukraine can't have the war forever. Uh, as I said, like even the elderly generation of Russians, which kind of, you know, maybe are more pro-democratic, always a bit treated Ukrainians as the young brothers or, you know, like those other smaller country. What we really felt today when I really started to talk to these younger people in their 20s, they don't have that. That yeah. doesn't regard that, that Putin wants to, to uh, you know, bring up a new imperialist uh, society because he still believed that this is empire. For those people, those countries like Ukraine, Moldova, oh, they're totally different. And that's where I think, like, at least they don't have this sentiment. No, and I would add, uh, Natalia, that I think Ukraine has done a very good job of, of advancing this historical narrative that Ukraine is part of Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as, as Timothy Snyder said in the lecture a few years back, European history doesn't really make sense if it doesn't include Ukraine as part of European history. I think this is a, a very salient point that Professor Snyder made in a lecture he gave at the University of Chicago a few years back. We're bumping up against the end here, um, and I just wanted to give you each a uh, chance to make you know, any last comments before we wrap it up for the week. Uh, um, I completely agree with what you said about Snyder's lecture, but I just want to stretch this a little bit. European history doesn't make sense without Russia. So let's let's not be too quick to dismiss them. Um, I think that um, what I hope to see in Russia in future is um, a change from the current situation to a more democratic, some sort of a Yeltsin coming next. I know that probably is wishful thinking, but um, I mean, history, history has taught us that we need to stay engaged. We need to... Um, do everything we can to seek out information, to exchange information, not jump to conclusions. Um, and I, I know this isn't a very powerful ending, but the, the future is ahead of us. And I think Ukraine in 30 years has shown us surprises. 
I hope that Russia will surprise us in the next 30 years in a positive way. I would hope that would be the case, but I am not optimistic about that. And I, I think we have to be prepared for the worst case scenarios in Russia and just do what we can to protect ourselves. But that's just my very, very cynical view of, 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 the, of the situation in Russia at the, at the moment. I think we have a problem that's a lot deeper than Putin. I think we have a Russia problem, not a Putin problem, quite frankly. Um, I think the problem in Russia is systemic and normative. Um, and that I think the best thing that could help change Russia is actually a successful Ukraine. I think that would create a catharsis, possibly, in Russia that would force them to change. John, your thoughts? Um, I'll, I'll follow where Marta started, uh, but pick up your point, too. Um, I do think Ukraine's ultimately going to be successful. It might take them a generation or even 30 years, but it's going to happen. And, you know, my sensibilities are historic, historical. And from that point of view, your pessimism about Russia is justified. But let me give you a metaphysical, excuse me, a metahistorical argument why I think March is going to be right, that Russia is going to wind up heading in the right direction. And that's this. In the current stage of top-down driven economic system and perhaps even a top-down driven political system, there are people in Russia, people in the elite who understand that. And as more people in the elite understand and more Russian people in general understand that this top-down system where Russia seems needs to impose itself on its smaller neighbors is going to prevent them from taking its rank among the first um, among the first nations of the world, they will head in the right direction. And I believe a successful Ukraine is going to be a powerful example for that. No, I, I, I hope you're right, and I hope I'm wrong, John. I truly hope that's the case. Natalia gets the last word from Lviv. Yeah, I think that... Uh... For your audience, of course, it's interest to, um, you know, while we're talking. Uh, but I do think it's um, somehow Ukraine is trapped in this conversation uh, because it's often compared to those big countries. Uh, it's recently we've done also the research on, you know, what independence uh, mean for the Ukrainian and like whether what, what, what do they consider independence? And of course, for, for many, uh, also with all the media narratives, it's hard to say because they understand like everybody's dependent. There are th those big countries like US, like Russia, and people feel a bit, you know, minor to those glo global powers. Uh, yet I often think with our advice and our recommendation based on the research, what we're saying that like, let's speak finally about Ukraine as a normal middle-sized country, not small, which shouldn't be always compared to the U.S. or Russia, because it, it, you just can't always live in the world when you compare it to global powers. And uh, finally, we also should think about the uh, talking about Ukraine as about a normal country with all the problems. That if we have elections and there are two different parties, it doesn't mean the country is divided. It means that there are people with different kind of views. If there are people speaking different languages, it just bilingual country so a lot of things in some regards um because of the narratives because of this because people know so little about ukraine there are too many stereotypes always seen as crises however um now i think we're living in the interesting time where maybe sometimes we are despite of the war we should bring attention to the war and the crimea and the situation there but we finally in the moment when maybe there could be some kind of a boring life in, in the independent Ukraine, um, where 
where maybe like elections 1994, we just can't afford to leave and be just seen as, as normal. That's as much as Ukrainians uh, need and I do feel they deserve. No, you have you have long been the voice of reason, Natalia. I can't re- I can't I, I can't I'll never forget uh, we when we were speaking the last time I was in Ukraine, it was right before the last presidential election. Everybody in Kiev was losing their heads. And you said my job right now is to calm everybody the hell down. <laughs> and you, it turned out that, it turned out that you were absolutely right. And on that note, we shall wrap it up for this week, as that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you've been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies, in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from the Austin. Awesome city of Toronto in the awesome country of Canada is my old friend Martin DeChalk, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario, CERES fellow at the University of Toronto, and author of six books, including The Grand Alliance in Ukraine's Refugees and Ukraine Calling, a kaleidoscope from Ramadskid Audio. Also with us from the lovely city of Lviv, where she is on the streets as Ukrainians are celebrating independence, is veteran Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumanyuk, author of the book The Lost Island, reporting from an occupied Crimea. And last but not least, joining us from beautiful Washington, D.C., is Ambassador John Herbst, Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. John, of course, also served as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006. Thank you to all three of you for, uh, for a for a enlightening and lively discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Also, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And also, like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our, our all important post production duties, cleaning up my many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it boosts our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.